The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Wall Street and Asian equities rebounding after President Trump appears to say that Iran is standing down from a confrontation with the U.S. and signals no further military action against Tehran. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Oil prices stabilize after sharp declines push WTI back into correction territory as President Trump vows more punishing sanctions against Iran. Carlos Ghosn declares his innocence in his first public appearance since skipping bail in Japan, telling CNBC he believes financial misconduct charges are part of a plot by Nissan to challenge Renault's control over the alliance. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen lay out their Brexit non-negotiables with the European Commission chief warning a comprehensive trade deal will be impossible to reach by the end of 2020. So, as we said in the headlines, Mr. Trump has claimed that tensions between Iran and the U.S. are easing, which is an extraordinary statement, isn't it? But we'll go with it for the moment, saying Tehran is, quote, standing down following an attack on American targets in Iraq. Mr. Trump also reiterated his call for other world leaders and powers to abandon the 2015 nuclear deal and seek a fresh agreement with Tehran. The U.S. leader signaled there would be no further military action in response to the assault, but vowed to impose fresh economic restrictions on Iran. Being Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. Uh, let me talk you through the market action, the response that we've had to that retaliation from Iran on Wall Street. A bit of a, a soft start, but then uh, as the markets got going and started to park some of that risk to one side, what we had, fresh records in session, the S&P, Nasdaq, uh, touching on some of the peaks at one point. And you can see uh, the closing levels, 3.253 on the S&P and the Nasdaq, 9.129. Technology, uh, a very strong component of this market as investors went to one of the, the fairly usual go-tos that have been trading in recent weeks and months and that growth area of technology very much standing out in front. Apple, a big contributor to the performance of the S&P and the Nasdaq. When it comes to the Dow, you can see uh, just over a half of a percent or 160 plus points to the upside. So very strong trade playing out. But uh, that also masks somewhat of a reversal in the safe havens as investors stretch for a little bit more risk. It was a very weak day playing out for WTI, which saw its worst trading day since November, pulling back into correction territory. So the level uh, below the 60 handle this morning as we also try and pick up uh, some of those losses uh, that transpired yesterday. The inventory 
reading in the United States also somewhat of a negative as you saw investors weigh up the amount of stockpiles in the States. 65.78 the handle for Brent as we've also pulled back away from that 70 handle morning session. It's catching a bid but uh, that is off a lower level as investors have repriced this market and uh, taken us away from the high levels that we've seen in the heightened moments this week as investors have been trying to read in around this tension with Iran. Let me take you to some of the other markets, Asian markets today in trade digesting uh, the Wall Street action and you can see it as a bounce right across the region particularly for the Japanese stock market in fact climbing to its highest point so far this year 23,741 currently 530 plus points to the upside. The Japanese yen also uh, moving in the opposite direction. You've seen uh, that safety trade that has lifted the Japanese yen this week. That uh, has been largely put to one side at this stage. We've even got a 109 handle on yen versus the dollar at this point, and that is supportive for the Tokyo stock market. But uh, the gains are spreading right across the region, as you can see. At the opening calls here in Europe, it was a bit of a mixed day for the European markets, weighing up some of the sentiment. And the gauge that you saw was reflected uh, in a trade that was mostly slightly positive yesterday, not a huge runaway direction. You did see elements where the uh, German stock market was much firmer than the rest, up seven tenths of a percent. And these markets looking extremely optimistic this morning as we witness a, a double digit point gain early on in the opening calls for the German stock market, 115 points to the upside. A lot of Brexit developments too as negotiations took place yesterday. Some question marks around the time frame this year to try and negotiate a deal with the Europeans. 31 to the upside. I think that was one of the stories measures for the FTSE yesterday where we did see a little bit of softness uh, take place in that trade uh, across the course of the week. It's been down six tenths of a percent, very flat versus gains elsewhere. Fabulous. Thanks for that summary, Karen. Right, let's just get to Hadley and Dan who join us now from Dubai who can add some more uh, in-depth uh, understanding of this story. Hadley, um, very good morning to you. You've been following the story, of course, from Abu Dhabi and from Beirut. Now you're back in Dubai as well. What evidence does the president have for a de-escalation from the Iranian side, given the fact that the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei yesterday was talking about his desire for the U.S. to be removed, uh, whether it be forcibly or not, from the Middle East? That's the question, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, you have two conflicting narratives here. You know, on the face of it, the United States, President Trump, and we've been talking about this, frankly, all morning, um, declaring victory um, and saying, you know, we've de-escalated the situation, we've averted a crisis. The conversation now is turning towards not an if they're going to come to the table to start talking the nuclear agreement or a new nuclear agreement, but when. On the same point, however, the Iranians continuing uh, a different narrative, if you will. They're talking about um, U.S. casualties when the United States has assured the world that there were no U.S. casualties in the strikes. And they're also talking, frankly, about how this was a slap in the face of Americans. So two conflicting narratives, but that doesn't detract, I would say, uh, from what this has meant not just uh, for President Trump in terms of his potential re-election in 2020, um, in terms of knocking impeachment off the table and off the conversation, and off the airwaves for at least a week, and also in terms of um, the, the field of 2020. You know, what are we hearing from, uh, and what, frankly, can they say, um, these Democratic candidates, about the way that the president has handled this situation? Because on the face of it, de-escalation, the folks here in the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and other countries very happy with this situation. Um, it doesn't take away from the fact that uh, with the death of Qasem Soleimani, um, you have a lot of unanswered questions as of yet as to how proxies are going to respond, how Iran's going to be able to continue um, their policies in this region. Uh, but at the same point, 
a de-escalation, there's not really any way you can argue that this isn't a really big win for the president. Absolutely a big win for the president. And during this address overnight, he certainly said everything that asset markets wanted him to. We saw the S&P 500 finishing out at a record high off the back of these easing tensions. On the one hand, President Donald Trump claiming victory here, deciding not to take further military action against Iran, but instead focusing in on his traditional playbook, which is hitting Iran with more sanctions. Now, the question that we've been asking this morning is exactly what else can be sanctioned in Iran at this point? Yes. Not that much. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo already saying that about 90 percent of Iran's economy is already under heavy U.S. sanctions, the so-called maximum pressure campaign that's been very effective in essentially bringing Iran's economy to its knees. Right now, we see inflation in Iran up at around 40 percent the unemployment rate continuing to rise, and perhaps most interesting, demand for Iranian crude oil across Asia also showing signs of strain. We know China has been a big supporter of the regime when it comes to soaking up any of the crude that the country is actually able to export. But we're hearing now some fresh numbers coming out of China and Iran with regards to its overall exports to Asia. $12.8 billion worth of Iranian crude entering China in 2018. Analysts saying today that that number is set to fall below 10 billion in 2020. So obviously signs of strain on the economy. And that's not going to augur well for the Iranians moving forward, clearly putting the United States again in a position of strength here. Absolutely. A big win for the president, a big win for equity markets, seemingly a great win in this uh, context when it comes to the oil markets, when it comes to Saudi Arabia. We saw Aramco really hurting uh, over the last couple of days in particular. Um, no doubt everybody talking about uh, the length and uh, the frankly, the proximity of Adnoc facilities, Aramco facilities, every facility uh, that uh, has anything to do with oil and, and natural gas and petrochemicals in this part of the world in close proximity to Iranian missiles. That's what we understood uh, from those Abcake attacks, right? And that's something that everybody here was worried about. A collective sigh of relief in this part of the world. But at the same point, you still don't have visibility yet on how this is going to evolve down the pike. Because again, you've got two conflicting narratives here. Mm. Absolutely. And what happens next is the big question. We were discussing before about how now, even though the president has been able to claim victory here and domestically, the Iranians can also say this is a victory as well. They've been able to avenge the death of their martyr. Exactly. But the president still has this tin can around his leg coming into the election. The issue of Iran still largely unresolved and other foreign policy headaches that he needs to deal with now as well, including North Korea and China, which is probably the most near term risk as well. Absolutely. It's all about the optics, though, haven't we? We've, haven't we established that with, <laughs> with, this, with, with, this, with president, this president, with president yes. Trump? But let's listen in to how he played this in his press conference yesterday. U.S. armed forces are stronger than ever before. Our missiles are big, powerful, accurate, lethal, and fast. Under construction are many hypersonic missiles. The fact that we have this great military and equipment, however, does not mean we have to use it. We do not want to use it. American strength, both military and economic, is the best deterrent. The president basically underlying, we've got the biggest military, we've got the biggest missiles. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was quite keen to point that mm-hmm. one out. Um, biggest military in the world. This is something that we don't have to use. We can use this as a deterrent. This is a conversation that I've had and you've had multiple times with U.S. officials who come through this region talking about maximum pressure, talking about how they want to come to the table and have a conversation with the Iranians. It would be no surprise to me whatsoever that in the weeks and months to come, if 
we continue to hear uh, about potential conversations being had about another JCPOA, another kind of Iran nuclear deal. So a lot of cards on the table at this point, in spite of the fact that, as we say, there do continue to be uh, two streams of thought about what actually went down here. Indeed. And I think the broader message is take what you hear from the Iranians with a grain of salt. Uh, On the one hand, they are very keen to continue to lob rhetoric and threats towards the United States. But this is a country that does not have the military capability to take on the US, nor the economic capability either. So clearly big issues here about what they do moving forward. They can continue to ramp up the threats, but where's it really going to go? Exactly. And this actually works out really well for for Tehran, because at the end of the day, think about the months, weeks of protests that were anti-government protests Mm. as a direct result of the pain that was caused by maximum pressure. And 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 a win domestically, right? Definitely win domestically. And also, I think the other question is, um, are we going to see a meeting between Trump and Rouhani? Okay, sure. It's a wild card at this point. Maybe something to look out for in 2020 or 2021. But well, he said he is not talking to Javid Zari, the well, foreign he, minister. But he likes those Kodak moments, right? He had a Kodak moment with the North Korean leader. Is he going to do the same with the Iranians? I think it's something to I don't know. It might for. be the fact that we're here in the sunshine finally together yet again in Dubai. <laughs> so we're having maybe some overly optimistic thoughts on this. But a lot of things to keep on watching, guys. We're going to hand it back to you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Kazra Arabi joins us, analyst at the Institute for Global Change. Uh, Kazra, very, very good to see you this morning. Um, well, look, there is a school of thought, as our correspondents were talking about there, that this has been a huge win for the US president. I have my concerns that that call may be a little bit premature. I think it's important, first of all, to put the recent escalation into context. Um, the timeline of this escalation didn't begin with the strike on Soleimani. It no. began last year. Uh, since May, uh, nine, uh, since May 2019, um, Iran has attacked six commercial ships on the Straits of Hormuz, hijacked three, including a UK flagged vessel, struck down one US drone, uh, conducted the Aramco attacks, which were the largest disruption to oil in history. Um, it has attacked the U.S. embassy via its Shia militias in Iraq and killed a U.S. citizen. Oh, let, let's and go with all of that coming from Ron. Just, just get, let's get to the next stage. Yeah. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, and that's a great um, example of, of the recent context. So thank you for that. But is the president right or wrong to say that Iran is now de-escalating? That sounds an extraordinary sentence to me, given how short the time frame is for making that analysis. Again, I think it's too early to yeah. say, but um, I think you saw... Iran's response and to the to the strike on Soleimani and Iran knows Iraq very well um, and I actually think that it was delib- they deliberately avoided targeting US citizens uh, they have deliberately avoided that because they knew that the US had made it very clear that if US citizens were killed that is their red line so and they the would respond right they have pulled back you think I think that they know after the strike on Soleimani they know not to go too far um, and actually they will make obviously they'll make a lot of noise um, but I think actually this from the West they need this needs to be accompanied by a comprehensive strategy to contain Iran and what's most important is that the Europeans stand with the Americans in containing Iran I'm actually quite pleased with the British response making it very clear that the escalation is Tehran's fault looking at that timeline that we were discussing right. uh, since May and that I think other European leaders should follow suit. What about the Middle East position? Because there was some reporting that there may have been some peace deal in the works between 
Iran-Iraq and the Saudis, some negotiation that Soleimani may have been at the forefront of. There was some suggestion of that, which seemed at odds of the position for the Saudis who'd been at loggerheads with Iran in recent times and have obviously had a relationship with the Americans. So it's hard to know what the motivation was for the Saudis and what they wanted the Americans to do at that point before the killing of Soleimani. So where does that leave the Saudis and the motivation behind them driving the president to further action? I mean, in terms of the regional response, the idea that Soleimani was there for, to, 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 you know, craft peace is, is false. You know, Soleimani is the man, man responsible for pushing Tehran's regional agenda, for connecting. So, so do you think there as, wasn't anything to that? Because there were very I, sketchy details about what was I, taking I place behind I the scenes. I don't think so. Um, we look at Soleimani's record. It was only a few months ago in October when the Iraqi Shia population took to the streets against years of Iranian interference in Iraq, burning pictures of Soleimani and his master, the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei. Soleimani responded to those Shia protesters by ordering his militias to open fire. The result was 500 people being killed, 27,000 being injured. And you saw similar scenes in Iran as well. So in terms of the idea that Soleimani was after peace is, 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 is false. So we've had these skirmishes that have been taking place between Saudis and Saudi proxies and Iran-Iran proxies that have been really occurring and particularly concentrated around that key oil facility at a moment when they're bringing a major asset to market. And it felt as though maybe that had been dealt with domestically by different links to different regimes. But is that the case now as we look at this wider picture as the Americans have become more involved in the region again with missile strikes and taking out Soleimani? Do you think that there's a link here between the Saudis and the Americans, which could be that motivating factor for any future action? I mean, I, I, I couldn't say that. I've, I've not heard anything on about that. Um, what I do know is that I think it's quite clear, and it should be clear to both Washington and the Europeans, that now is not the time to withdraw from the Middle East, as many have been calling for. Um, that actually, if we withdraw from the Middle East now, it leaves a vacuum, and that will further embolden Iran's regime and its uh, and the back and its back proxies, which have been causing so much mayhem both in Iraq, from Iraq through to through to Lebanon. And let's not forget that Soleimani was the man responsible. Uh, in assisting Assad killing half a million Syrians. Um, and just weeks ago, his force, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, opened fire, killing 1,500 Iranians. Um, it's 42 years almost to the day since the start of the Iran Revolution, the 7th of January, 1978 as well. 79. 78, I believe. Nine. Well... Uh, okay, well, uh, I think it's the. You could, I'm pretty sure that we started in 70, anyway, 78, 79. Let's go with that. The actual revolution sure. succeeding in 79. I can give you that. Anyway, let, we'll, we'll, we'll look back on our history books as well. But the fact of the matter is, um, this has been a 41 stroke 42 year battle between Iran uh, and its enemies in the region and indeed with their Western backed allies as well. Um, do we believe that this will abate now with the death of Soleimani? Will it bring the Iranians to the table or indeed? Uh, will this continue? I think you're absolutely right um, to say that this is dates back 41 years ago, uh, to 41 years since the start of the revolution. The ideology that was born out of the revolution, what is and remains, and it still is, and it's an anti-American, anti-Western ideology. It's a Shia Islamist ideology, a narrow interpretation of Shia Islam. And it seeks the purpose of the revolution, as stated, by the way, in the Islamic Republic's constitution to this very day, is to export the revolution uh, overseas. And the Revolutionary Guard, of which Soleimani was leading its key force, the Butz Force, which is the Jerusalem force that was created to, quote, liberate 
Palestine through the destruction of the state of Israel, what they call the Zionist regime. In the constitution, it says they have an ideological mission of jihad, and that is to extend Sharia across the world and export the revolution overseas. So I think until you see a change in stance in that ide ideological stance, I don't think the long-term ambitions of the Iranian regime which is to export their revolution, will end. Um, I've just checked on our timeline, seeing as we're having a battle of wills over it. One could argue 77, 78, 79. I will argue 78, if I may, and continue to do so. Sure. You will be referring to the toppling of the Shah in 1979, Absolutely. I guess. The, 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 <laughs> the victory of the Islamic Revolution was on the 11th of February, 1979. The start of the Iranian Revolution was in January 1978. Of, of course, but Khomeini would gain. Well, should we call that a score draw? Because I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> but Kazra, thank you very thank much you very much for joining me. There you go. We can even... Uh, argue about historical precedents as well, but we're getting you to the truth. Thank you, Kazra. Kazra Arabi, who is analyst at the Institute for Global Change. Plenty coming up on the show, including around key corporate stories ahead. Carlos Ghosn breaks his silence after mysterious escape from Japan. CNBC hears more from the man himself. Plenty coming your way after this. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Former Nissan boss Carlos Ghosn has broken his silence for the first time since a dramatic escape from house arrest in Japan. During a more than two-hour news conference in Lebanon, Ghosn denied all charges of financial misconduct. He attacked injustice in the Japanese legal system and called for a fair trial. Speaking to Michelle Caruso Cabrera after the news conference, Ghosn claimed he was the victim of a conspiracy. The first reason is the decline of the performance of Nissan where I started to be extremely frustrated with the management that, uh, in fact, I put in place, particularly with Saikawa. So I was very nervous about his job because he knew that, you know, me representing Renault with 43% of the shareholders, I had the power to remove him from the job at any moment, which, in a way which is justified because the performance of the, of the company was declining. That's the first reason. The second reason, as I said, there is a lot of uh, people who really did not like uh, a kind of merger with Renault. And as long as I was uh, heading the alliance, they trusted that I would protect the autonomy of Nissan. I would protect Nissan from, you know, the fact that the French government wanted to interfere mm -hmm. into business that the Japanese did not like at all. Um, and um, uh, but, but they said, well, why do you know, why do we have to wait for this guy? Why do we get rid of this guy? And if we get rid of him in a certain way, we get rid of Renault. We get rid of the influence that Renault has on us. And they were right. If people t were to read all the press reports payments to Oman, the situation with Versailles, they could leave with the impression that over time, whether on purpose or due to poor bookkeeping, that there was commingling of your personal finances with corporate finances. Yeah. Were there? Well, uh, everything was built in order to let you think that. You know, the, the, Nissan has built a very good case with the help of uh, Leighton and Watkins and with the help of other people who are specialists of this kind uh, of things. Uh, uh, and they, they built an image and they attacked through legal and they attacked through the media. 
it was very well done in a certain way. So a lot of people think, okay, well, this guy is shady. shady. That means he's, he's doing all of the things, etc. And while I was in prison, I couldn't defend myself. And everything was done for me not to be able to talk. When I wanted to make a press conference in Tokyo, I, was, I came back to prison 24 hours after they came with new charges, immediately. So, and when the new, new prosecutor was named about two months ago, and the press in Japan was complaining to the prosecutor, why do you forbid Carlos going to talk to, to the press? He said, no, 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 I'm not forbidding him to talk to the press. He can talk to the press. But uh, at the same time, as, as he is free to talk to the press, we are free to bring new charges, which was an, a, a, a thinly veiled uh, uh, threat that if you open your mouth, you're going to go back. So we want to end all of this. I want to be able to speak. I want to be able to defend myself. I want a justice system where uh, attack and defense have same rights and it's balanced and let the truth happen. I was in a system where it's not a question. It's not about the truth. It's about winning. It's about confession. It's about, I think you're guilty. So I'm going to prove you're guilty. I don't care about the truth. I'm going to select all the things that are favorable to my theory and everything else I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm going to reject it. Japan's justice minister hit back at Goen's accusations and called on him to return to the country to face trial. At the press conference held overnight by Carlos Ghosn, he presented various criticisms of Japan's judicial system. But most of them were abstract, unclear of their intention, or baseless, and they were carried live all around the world. As we fear that this could present the wrong idea about Japan's system far and wide, I am holding this press conference so we correct such perception. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.